Okay, Bismillah. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome to another episode of the Dadhood podcast. Um, and today, um, this one wasn't streamed live on Instagram. Some of them we do, some of them we don't. Uh, so you'll be seeing this a little bit later. But if you do want to join into some of the podcasts at another point when maybe we are doing it live, then do make sure you follow the links that you may find for uh, my Instagram. Uh, and also, like I've been saying in some previous episodes, Alhamdulillah, I've had some help from the nursery that my children attend to put together some of these videos. So again, I'm going to include their uh, link in the description. And if your children are looking to attend um, a nursery and you're around this sort of Waterford area like I am, then you can check out their website and their Instagram. So those things out of the way today alhamdulillah we have uh, an amazing guest with us something a conversation that i'm very much looking forward to which is our brother alim sheikh who is the head teacher at uh, barnet hill academy which at the moment is an independent fee-paying school and that may be changing and that's something that we uh, inshallah will be speaking about um so those of you who are interested in education uh, interested in Islamic schooling, interested in um, all things teacher school, Muslim education related, then this is definitely the podcast to be listening to. So, Assalamu alaikum. Um, uh, Sheikh Alim Sheikh, <laughs> uh, how are you doing? Alhamdulillah. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. How are you? Good, Alhamdulillah. I'm doing well. Um, so usually my guests, they, they don't know the format of this, but you, mashallah, have done your homework and uh, you know what's coming next. So the first question that we ask all of our guests is, uh, how old were you when you became a father and uh, how many children do you have? Okay, so uh, being a teacher, of course, I had to do my homework <laughs> uh, to learn a little bit more about the show beforehand. Uh, so I was 25 years old when I married and I have uh, three children, alhamdulillah, uh, three boys. Uh, two of my boys are still with us and one is with our, with our rub, alhamdulillah. Okay, alhamdulillah. Great, alhamdulillah, that's amazing. Uh, so 25 years old, that seems like it's sort of uh, the normal age, I would say that, that, uh, many sort of Muslim couples start to get married around the mid twenties. Uh, did you go into that thinking I'm going to get married, uh, around that age, have this vision? What, what, what was it like for yourself? So I, I, I married at 25, uh, purely because, uh, I wanted to follow in the, the tradition of our prophet, peace be upon him. Yeah. Uh, I was keen. Obviously, we understand that marriage is half of our, half of our deen. And uh, we understand that one should uh, endeavor to follow the traditions of our prophet, peace be upon him. So that was my intention and my goal. I, and I was 28. I think your next question is, what age did I have children at? So I was 28 when I had my first child. Right. Uh, so I... That was the intention behind getting married at 25. Okay, Alhamdulillah. Do you remember the first time you became a father? What was the experience like? Uh, yes. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, we, uh, quite a, 
strange time in terms of work because I had left one job and migrated and then left another job and migrated. And uh, I had found myself back in Scotland. Yeah, uh, if you can't tell from the accent. <laughs> <laughs> I had found myself back in Scotland and uh, I was in a, a sort of a temporary advisory role at the time. And uh, because of the nature of that role, uh, I decided to do Hajj. I was able to do Hajj, and so I did Hajj. Okay. And uh, uh, Hajj at that time was in March. Uh, obviously, it was a long time ago. And uh, the idea was <laughs> that I completed my Hajj on my own with, with, with the group that I was going with. And that when I returned, two or three weeks later, that our son would be born. Uh, and uh, such are our best laid plans. But Allah is, of course, the best of planners. And uh, whilst I was on Hajj in Medina, after after the Hajj, uh, doing our ziyarat and what have you, uh, that was when my son was actually born. Wow. And uh, I wasn't aware uh, that he was born premature. Okay. Um, so you, it was only you, when... you had thought, like, once you, you've gone um, for, for this uh, trip, that you'll come back and there'll still be a few <laughs> weeks left and you'll be part of that whole process. Yeah, that my Hajj would be complete. Yeah. Uh, that then, you know, obviously we would have our son and so on and so forth. So I was in Medina and... Uh, I remember I was actually quite troubled, even during some of my salah mm. uh, in in the Prophet's mosque, um, and uh, there were there were there were just things and thoughts, and little did I know that at that precise moment in time, you know what the cause of those possible yeah. sort of a you know thoughts or things that were going through in my mind were. It was only when I returned to to London, to the airport, uh, as I was catching the flight, flying back up to Scotland, that my family told me uh, that my son had been born. SubhanAllah. So you, you, you went even away, but it was just this, 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 this feeling inside of you, SubhanAllah. Mm. That's, that's amazing. Um, and, uh, and do you remember those first sort of few maybe the first year or two was 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 fatherhood like a very new concept to you or did you feel prepared you know did you have maybe younger siblings or nieces nephews around in the household that that just it kind of it kind of felt like yeah this is uh you know i know this off the back of my hand i i i think i don't think it was entirely new to me i've been in education my entire life right in, in one form or fashion so i've been around children uh i graduated became a teacher immediately uh, and my son was born quite soon after i became a teacher uh, so i'd always been around children and young people uh, in in and out of schools okay whichever kind of uh, work i was doing in education uh, plus we had the benefit like you say of lots of family, very traditional, uh, if you like, Pakistani family. And uh, my parents had the privilege 
at that time uh, of having one granddaughter or grandson uh, for a period of, I think, 10 or 11 years consecutively. Right. So there were a few nieces and nephews before, and then there were a few nephews and nieces after uh, one for every year during that, 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 that period. Mashallah. Okay, so it's, it's, there's, there's definitely a lot of uh, sort of chances for you to get stuck in to, to sort of father roles and, and things like that. Alhamdulillah. Okay, that's, Alhamdulillah. that's good. We were living in, again, one of those traditional multi-generational yes. homes. Yeah. So grandparents, children, grandchildren, all in one home. Uh, so we were very blessed in that respect. Did you find that that, that came to you and... Um, your wife's advantage when it came to parenting, being being in such a household, because nowadays that's it's becoming less and less common for for younger parents to do that. In fact, like even for myself, I made the decision to move out of the home and find my own place um, to, to 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 raise my family, um, and I think that comes with its benefits. But I also see the benefits of being in the in the generational home, and it'll be interesting to you know I'm I'm therefore maybe from a completely generation, uh, complete different generation to yourself. So in the way that the parenting works, it's inter interesting to see uh, the differences and the dynamic. How, how did you feel being part of that? Do you think it was to your advantage? I think uh, what you may find is that depending upon whom you ask, there are different answers to that question. Yeah. So whether you ask, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the father and whether the father is living with his parents or whether, as is uh, probably less common, you yes. ask the mother and you're living with the mother's parents, of course, you'll have a different answer. <laughs> uh, so that's, that, that's one aspect. If you leave that aspect aside. Yeah. Uh, my experience was one where uh, we were sandwiched between both. So prior okay. to living in the multi-generational home with my parents, we had spent a little bit of time on our own independently. And soon after our son was born, we had to move out, uh, primarily for work reasons. So, you know, I, I've had the privilege of, of both experiences. And, and as usual is the way with these things, there's pros and cons with both. Um, I, I think it's important that, that those young couples have an opportunity to find their own feet independently yeah. and get to know one another. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges and from what I gather, um, that that's one of the main reasons that many young couples choose to move out and find their independence, strike on their own and so on and so forth. Uh, I, obviously that has great benefits, but there's certainly a lot of benefit in living with one's uh, peers, uh, not just parents, but also elder siblings or younger siblings. Um, and also with, you know, with grandparents. Um, it, it has its drawbacks, of course. What I find is that often grandparents, uh, and I'm not saying this is uh, for, for every parent, but, but sometimes those younger couples find grandparents can be interfering, of course. Yeah. Uh, that their parenting skills, their parenting approaches are being forced upon their children. So those yeah. are sort of some of the reasons why it's beneficial maybe not to be around. But then again, there's a huge amount of wealth and tradition 
and understanding and knowledge and support that those grandparents can offer. Yeah. Uh, so, and I think it boils down to a very individual experience. What I would say is that uh, striking out independently, there are skills that parents don't acquire when they are on their own. And there's a great deal that one can learn from one's elders, of course. Definitely. Uh, I know, I agree with you. I think um, you, if you completely remove yourself from 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 the picture with uh, with the grandparents um and you know the uncles the aunties and things like that you're you're losing a lot and a lot of parenting comes from uh, the, the direct learning and experience of others rather than looking at reading through books in fact i had a friend on this podcast before who compared parenting books to books about swimming you know that it's not it's only until you actually try and and you get into the deep waters and you work with somebody who's been there and done that um do you really gain the fruits but if you're just reading and listening to podcasts like this and not actually you know um being in the in, in the trenches and, and and learning off those who are more experienced then you're definitely going to be losing out a big part of, of your parenting well, I think if we reflect upon it, parenting is a skill mm. and skills are rarely uh, learned through books. Yeah. Uh, and if we reflect, I mean, you, you used the word earlier on that I come from a, if you like, a slightly different generation, of course. Yeah. Um, if you look at it over the ages, over the past one, two generations, uh, if I were to look at parents today, and as I say, I've been involved in education now for uh, almost 30 years. Uh, one of the biggest challenges we have in education in schools is actually around parenting skills and the ability of parents to parent. Right. Uh, so uh, I think there is more that has been lost than gained through that divorce of family tradition, uh, strong family culture, family bonds, and having grandparents around, not even living with, but just even around. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, how long have uh, you been outside of Scotland? Are you in, in London? This, this uh, can lead to another question. <laughs> so, uh, outside of London, well, I, I have basically 25 years. Okay. So, uh, I left as soon as I had uh, qualified as a teacher. But then I have had one or two short episodes uh, a couple of years back in Scotland. Okay. Now, uh, the question is sort of, uh, do you see there being any sort of difference between raising Muslim children in, in Scotland versus other parts of the UK in, in your experience? Uh, I, I, I grew up in Scot I grew up in Glasgow. Yeah, and uh, uh, and I've spent most of my adult life in uh, post education in in London or uh, yeah, the vast majority other cities yeah. and countries also, but the vast majority in London. And uh, Glasgow doesn't have a very good reputation, unfortunately, in terms <laughs> of. Uh, in terms of some of the societal aspects, it's uh, it's uh, th there's a strong uh, undercurrent of a, a 
deprivation, you could say. Right. Uh, uh, it has one of the highest teenage uh, births in all of Europe. Wow. Pretty much consistently. There has been uh, periods where it's lost that crown, mm. uh, <laughs> but uh, it has regained. And, and of course, that's a means out of deprivation for many of those young, or, or, or many of those young uh, girls find it as a means of a way out of deprivation or a cycle. I'm not saying that is the case, but that's how they perceive it. Yeah. Uh, it does have its own drugs problems. And also, you know, a degree of uh, employment, uh, un unemployment and so on and so forth. So it has its fair share of uh, problems uh, in some respects. Uh, I, I, I'm sure there's many politicians that would disagree with me and say all the positive things that Glasgow has, and it has very many positive things. But uh, in short, what I'm saying is that uh, growing up in a place such as London or uh, a city such as Glasgow yeah. uh, or, or a country such as Scotland, which has a population of 5 million and a a country such as England, uh, where London alone has about 15 million population. Yep. They're two quite different things and experiences and society has a big uh, bearing upon how one is brought up. Uh, in general terms, much more uh, relaxed, uh, 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 much more laid back, uh, much, more unrelent uh, much more unrelenting. Uh, London, London is a much more unrelenting place than, than, yes. than places like Scotland or Glasgow. Uh, and of course, those things bring their own challenges, the, the deprivation and, and the pace of life and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I, 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 I wanted to ask that because obviously I've never had somebody who's who's lived in and grown up in, in Scotland. And there there is a lot of conversation about, you know, um moving moving to different parts of the uk or moving abroad uh, and, and and it's very much to do the reasons are you know maybe the reasons used to be more to do with economic reasons um and i think the reasons are now becoming a lot more to do with uh parenting more uh, you know social issues moral issues and things like this so uh, just seeing there's a there's a significant significant difference between you know, England and, and, and Scotland, there, there there would be a lot of uh, differences also going further abroad. And these are types of things that people, I guess they should, they should be considering, you know, how, how different it would be, you know, thinking that, okay, maybe the grass is greener on the other side, but you don't really know, you know, you don't, you, you, and, and how different, how much difference is just between England and Scotland can show you how much a difference there may be elsewhere and making those decisions very carefully on, where your children will be raised and what you think is actually a better environment for your children and, and, and what is not. Um, which I guess it brings me, because you said that your part of uh, maybe your, your, your Korean education brought you to other parts of the world. So what, 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 what got you into Korea in the first place and, and where, where have you into that career and uh, where have you traveled when it comes to your teaching? Uh... I think like from maybe, I mean, I've, I've been in, as say, education. I trained in the mid nineties, early nineties. I, I think I qualified in 94 or 95. Yeah. So I, I qualified as an English teacher then. And, um, 
there was a time, I'm, I'm not so sure it's so much the case today, but there was a time, a long time, in education and in the teaching profession where one would hear that it was a teacher who inspired you to become a teacher. Hmm. Uh, and I think there was a, uh, a couple of things that led me to become a teacher. I, I was always interested in the arts and I studied, uh, I studied philosophy and English as an undergraduate at Glasgow University. And uh, that was what grabbed me. I enjoyed reading, I enjoyed literature, right. and I enjoyed uh, philosophy, thinking and reading uh, about the world and the world around us. And so, so stepping into teaching was uh, almost natural uh, but I suppose if you add two or three uh, elements, you know, that uh, opportunity to read uh, and and write and think. And yeah. also, uh, I went to, I happened to go to what at the time, uh, the school no longer exists, but it was the worst, it was nominated the worst school in the East End of Glasgow. <laughs> uh, but the teachers were wonderful. Right. And I happened to have an English teacher who I recall just invested in me mm. uh, as uh, the, the, the son of an, of an, of an immigrant uh, growing up in the uh, 70s and 80s in the East End of Glasgow, having, uh, uh, you know, a, a white English teacher. Yeah. A, you know, taking you under her wing and teaching you English. Uh, these are the kind of things that, 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 that memories are, are, are made of. So I think way back in the sort of, uh, uh, you know, in, 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 those, in those times when things were very stark, uh, in my secondary schooling in the East End of Glasgow, there were no other non-white people. And so non, non, a uh, Asians, uh, not Asian or non-black or being right. people. Right. Uh, so having those kinds of experiences where teachers really invested in you, uh, then going through the system, uh, finding your feet at university, reading and writing, I think it, it was almost a very natural progression. And when the thought came to me, it was almost like some form of wahi, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was, I want to become a teacher. So I went to teacher training college. Right. Okay. Uh, and lo and behold, I found the, the same situation. Uh, I was the only uh, non-white teacher training to become a teacher wow. uh, during that period and, uh, and went through the, the system uh, and uh, qualified to become a teacher. Did you find that difficult being the only non-white? Were there you treated differently due to your race or did you find that actually, you know, no. it, it was just, I, I, maybe did you yourself feel awkward uh, and, and th there was actually no uh, discrimination there? No. And I think, and I think, uh, I think, uh, that's one of the good things about the teaching profession. I, I didn't at all. And your earlier question about growing up in Scotland, should yeah. one make that kind of transition? Certainly Scotland, if you've ever been, you'll find it a very friendly place. The I hope to visit. Warm. I haven't yet. Inshallah, we'll take you one day. Inshallah. Uh, so if people are very warm, they're very friendly. Of course, a very 
uh, in those periods, again, more societally, I would say, than perhaps to do with the people, uh, there were a lot of difficulties growing up as a person of colour uh, during, you know, uh, the, you know, during during that that those political times. Sure. Uh, but going through university, going through uh, teacher training, absolutely not. Even although I was the, the only person, not only in, at, at that particular university, a uh, teacher training in the in the early nineties, mid nineties. There were no BAME people, certainly, or very, very few who were going through the system as qualified uh, teachers. Okay. Uh, but I found it a very welcoming place. Uh, and I recall one experience where I went to do my teacher, when I was doing my teacher training in, in, uh, in communities that were entirely white uh, at that time. So small towns, villages almost as well, sometimes outside of Glasgow. And when I asked for the key, uh, when I asked for a, a prayer facility, yeah. so my stance was very much, I'm a teacher, I'm Muslim, I need to pray every yes, day. Yes, yes. Uh, and when you're doing your six or eight week or 12 week placement in a school, you have to do three placements in a year. Uh, of course, I had to make sure that I had the facility to pray. So my experience was extremely positive uh, in one school where it was a village, no white, pe no way, uh, sorry, BAME people whatsoever. I asked for the facility and I was given the key for the, uh, for the main school's conference room. Yeah. You know, so they treated me in such a positive way that those experiences were all really positive. So, you know, having the keys to the school's conference room every day, whenever I wanted it, just to do my salah. Uh, was the kind of respect that uh, that I received during during those times. Alhamdulillah, that's really good to hear. Um, being a teacher is obviously very difficult. It's, it's very well known, um, and and most teachers stay in the profession not for the money, but because of the love of the profession itself. Um, and uh, therefore, it's 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 obviously quite rare to. Um, see many people take up the profession to, uh, you know, a much higher level, which you have done, which is, you know, going up and, and, and becoming a head teacher uh, and teaching at multiple schools and, uh, uh, you know, uh, abroad as well. So why, what, what, what drove you to sort of take the profession further, uh, given okay. that it's, it's generally quite difficult? Hey. Okay, so sorry, I realized that I, when you just said uh, abroad as well, I didn't answer the second part of your earlier question. Uh, so just briefly, uh, my educational experiences have taken me uh, from as far north as uh, Inverness. I visited schools, uh, Gordonston School, I've been there a few times. I haven't taught there, but visited. Uh, in, in many, in, under different guises, sometimes as an advisor, consultancy roles, advisory roles, uh, teaching, etc. Et so as far yeah. north as uh, Inverness, in England, as far south as the Isle of Wight, uh, uh, more broadly, uh, as far south as uh, Melbourne, wow. and as far uh, east as Beijing, and as far west as Chicago. 
Wow. Uh, <laughs> and, and a few places, obviously, in between, but those are the extremities. So uh, across Europe, France, Germany, Italy, I visited on, on, for different reasons, uh, Africa, uh, Nigeria. I've done some work uh, in the Gulf, also Pakistan, etc. So, so the experience has been quite wholesome. It's been quite quite broad in that respect. Right. Uh, and in terms of what has, uh, I think you asked, driven me on. Yeah, to 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 kind of go up the ranks and and you know stay in the profession, go up to taking more responsibilities as a head teacher. I mean, already being you know just a teacher of a classroom is very very difficult. So why? Why put yourself through the paces? Uh, I always encourage uh, my own children and, and other children to follow their passions. Mm. And uh, education, and uh, that, that's a very broad word, but uh, developing and helping young people to grow, uh, for me, it, it's a passion. Uh, it's something that I'm committed to and uh, when I entered the profession I was very keen to excel and to to teach and when I started to become good at teaching I wanted to to do a bit more so I, I wanted to start to train uh, other teachers and I started to to engage with that and I worked in an advisory roles and I worked for, for local authorities and then I started to develop that when I started to become good at teacher training. Uh, I wanted to sort of share my skills and expertise a bit further. So I started to write and right. I went into academia and I started to do some research. And so the cycle just, you know, <laughs> we just continue. If we want to progress, uh, we keep pitching higher uh, in terms of the the path. I'm not very much a career person, but of course, if you want to make a broader impact upon things, uh, you, you, you push, you know, you push yourself and you develop yourself further. And those, that traction just, it just built and it built and it built over time. So I started doing teacher training. I started doing a, a, a writing, started publishing, I started doing con consultancy work. Um, and I've kind of done things back to front. A lot of people go through the school system and they become a head of department and then become a senior leader and then they become a head teacher and so on and so forth. And then they go into consultancy. Yeah. Uh, I did it the other way around. So I've, I've started to manage and lead schools towards the latter part of my, my career. So I'm now a head teacher, but I have th those other skill sets and, and, and now I'm enjoying leading schools. Uh, I lead uh, obviously this school where I'm presently, but I also lead another Islamic faith school. And I've helped establish uh, three or four schools, three or four Islamic faith schools during my time as well. Okay, Alhamdulillah. Uh, which I guess brings me on to the next question is, why are the Islamic faith schools so important to you? Um, you know, there's many Muslim teachers that are just working in state schools, in public schools. Um, and uh, you've chosen to now take your career through that route. Um, what, what is that? What, what, what makes you want to do that? Uh, well, I haven't actually. I, I, um, my very first role was helping to establish an Islamic faith school. Ah, so, okay. uh, yeah, my, uh, so after graduating as a teacher, my very first role was to help establish a, 
a school that's still going, Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. So the passion's uh, been there since the beginning. Yeah, well, yeah I, I've never really seen it as a passion for Islamic faith schools. Okay. As I say, you know, I, I didn't mm. quite say that. What, what I said was around education and young right. people and, and, and latterly mm-hmm. helping adults to grow and develop as professionals, as teachers, as uh, leaders in, in education themselves. Uh, and I've been fortunate and privileged enough to be able to to, to support both young people and and uh, and adults. Uh, so, the I, ironically, my first role, as I say, it almost happened. I wasn't looking for Islamic faith schools. Remember, in the mid '90s in Scotland, th- there was no such thing. Yeah. Uh, and even today, there's very few Islamic faith schools in in Scotland. Only two or three or four in Glasgow. Right. Uh, so I. Uh, I stumbled across uh, an Islamic faith school, which happened to be Bronsbury College for Boys, as I was looking to become an English uh, <laughs> teacher. Right. And uh, the concept of Islamic faith schools being alien to me at that time, uh, uh, when I came down, I uh, went through the interview process, came across this uh man called Yusuf Islam, yes, uh, who was setting up a, a boys college or a boys school to complement his uh, uh, primary school and, and girls school. And so that's where the, the whole concept of uh, Islamic faith schools was opened up to me. Uh, I started working there. I spent a few years. Uh, there was a small team of three of us uh, that helped establish that school myself. That we had a head teacher, of course, I was a very young teacher then, and uh, and also an administrator. Uh, and I actually lived in the school as well. Uh, <laughs> so so there's a bit of a tradition of, uh, there's, there's a bit of an old school of Muslim faith school teachers who have actually lived in schools <laughs> as they have helped establish them. Uh, and that tradition kind of goes back 30 odd years. Uh, so, so I did. I did that. I helped establish. That was my first school, and then I moved on uh, from from there. And and in the intervening thirty odd years, as I say, uh, I've worked in and out of Islamic faith schools. So right. sometimes for local authorities and state schools, uh, different parts of the country uh, or abroad, and then periods at a time in the Islamic faith schools movement as well. Okay, so that's 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 quite a rich. Um... I guess a rich understanding you have of the Islamic school dynamic in the UK, uh, because clearly you've been involved in, in many of them, uh, help setting them up or, or training the teachers um, and, and developing the curriculums and whatever other consultancy you've done. What, ha- what have you seen in terms of the change over the years? You know, I mean, recently the census data has come out uh, over the last 10 years, we've seen a huge increase in, 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 in Muslims in this country, which begs the question of whether there needs to be more Muslim schools. But also makes me reflect on the previous 10 years, what were the state of some of those uh, Muslim schools and have there been any changes that have come along the ways? And I think, I think your, your, your rich history in that could give us a, a good understanding, inshallah. Excuse me. Well, I mean that's a it's a very uh, involved question mm. uh, that could take uh, you know quite some time to sort of, <laughs> uh, uh, you know cover. But uh, 
over the over the sort of intervening 20, 20 odd years, uh, there's there has been some positive news around Islamic faith schools, uh, and there's also some uh, not so positive news uh, in the sense of you know how far have we come, how far have we progressed? Yeah, uh, and and these 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 are contextual of course as well so I've already alluded to the fact that when I started to train as a, a professionally qualified teacher there were no other or there were very very few other uh, qualified Muslim teachers so as a minority ethnic group this was a profession that we weren't very well engaged with and, and you've already said also that uh, today there are huge swathes of Muslim teachers, but many of them work in, in state schools. So that's been one shift uh, in terms of as a society, as a Muslim diaspora, uh, that we see many more uh, Muslims engaged with the world of education as professionals. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the numbers of faith schools, uh, again, in the intervening years, yes, there has been a great burgeoning of Islamic faith schools. My understanding, my last sort of sense check of, uh, of, of Muslim faith schools uh, has been that they haven't really been growing as such over the past decade or so, to the same extent that they were maybe 15 to 20 odd years ago. So there was a boom, there was a, 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 an a, an explosion, if you like, a boom time for Islamic faith schools movement, uh, where they grew quite rapidly and they grew up to about 180 odd. Right. This is uh, going back a few years, but that trend hasn't continued. Uh, again, my last, and I was involved, I, I was involved, I have been involved with Muslim faith schools at, at a national level as well, uh, through <coughs> the Association of Muslim Faith Schools for, for a short period. Yeah. Uh, so currently there are still under 200 odd schools. So as a movement, the number hasn't grown, but yet the population has. Yeah. Uh, my last check on the data uh, of Muslim students, which probably goes back now three or four years because I haven't been involved with the sector uh, at a national level so much, is that the Muslim student population is about five or 6%. But yet those 180 to 200 Islamic faith schools only represent something like 0.05 of that student population. Yeah, yeah. And so now that this new data is, I'm sure those stats will be updated in terms of we'll have a bit more up-to-date data in terms of student, what the Muslim student population is. So is the Muslim community at large serving Muslim students uh, in terms of meeting their needs or having that provision there. And so the short answer to that would be no on a very simple uh, data, uh, you know, sense of data. Sure. In terms of uh, within the maintained sector, how many Islamic faith schools are there, i.e. have we pulled any traction as a community on uh, developing Islamic state-funded schools 
Uh, unfortunately, the data is even weaker. <laughs> there is less than 20 odd state-funded Islamic faith schools of any type, whether that's a free school, a voluntary school, or a, right. an old GM school, or an academy, etc. Any type of flora or fauna of state-funded school, there is less than a score of them across the whole of the UK. Uh, so that's the state of play of uh, the Muslim community at large having the provision in place. That's quite a different question uh, from is the Muslim community serving the needs yeah. of those Muslim students? Yes. Uh, I'd, I'd probably argue the answer to that is also no. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, which I guess, you know, you mentioning about um, state-funded Islamic schools, you know, brings us to, to, to Barnet Hill Academy. Um, so for, for, for many years, um, Barnet Hill has been independent, a uh, fee-paying school, and it's getting the opportunity as has been going out on Barney Hill social media and, and WhatsApp groups and things like this, that there's an opportunity for children who are joining uh, for reception next year from September 2023 to come into Barney Hill Academy um, with no fees, uh, with parents not having to pay any fees and this being a, a voluntary aid status um, uh, for that, for that two-form entry reception class. Why is that so important, um, would you say, uh, that this that sh this shift happens uh, between it being independent and it now getting that VA status? Well, it comes back to the earlier question as to how does the Muslim community serve the needs of Muslim children? So as I've said, in some respects, I I'm sure there will be some people that will disagree, of course, but in some respects, the Muslim schools movement has stood still. It's stagnated. The, if we were to rep, if we were to meet the needs of that five or six percent of all of the students in the UK, uh, the five or six percent that are Muslim, you know, 180, 200 odd Muslim faith schools obviously can't meet those needs. There's just insufficient places, uh, and so one way that you can start to to, to deliver. Uh, more effectively is to have more state-maintained education. Our parents, broadly across the UK, are, are unable to uh, manage to to to, to uh, you know to manage to afford to pay the fees for uh, you know independent schools. Uh, the average independent school fee uh, across the UK is approximately seventeen thousand. Wow, an independent school, any any independent school. That's the that's the average. Sure. Uh, uh, for Islamic faith schools, the average is much less than half that. Okay. So for those hundred eighty odd, there are schools across the UK that charge just over a thousand pounds, two thousand pounds, and the most expensive probably charge something in the region of seven to eight thousand pounds. Okay. So across the UK with the proportion of schools that serve Muslim students, those fees don't stretch to even what the average is for a non-Muslim independent school. And, and, and we know this because we know what our community, you know, what the stretch and the means of our community is. And by no way should the 12% of 
Muslims who represent, you know, the population of, of the UK uh, be expected to pay, you know, independent school fees for Islamic faith education? Why should yeah. they? Yeah. You know, by and large, one hopes, one prays that the vast majority of them are taxpayers. <laughs> uh, and if they are, then of course they should be entitled to have the ability to select, to send their child to a school which meets their children's needs with respect to their, uh, their not only their faith and their religion uh, and their uh, spiritual orientation, but also in terms of their identity. Yes. In terms of their, their well-being, of who they are, and of young people who need to find their way in the world. And I think asking and seeking for that equality of provision uh, and for that diversity of school is, is not such a huge ask for the tax-paying Muslims of this country. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of Muslim parents, it's quite clear in their mind sort of the, the, the benefits of having an Islamic school and their, their children being in an Islamic school. And I, you know, I don't think we need to spell it out. You know, like you said, this, this Muslim identity, um, you know, there's, there's uh, having uh, maybe some sort of uh, under, better understanding with the teachers, with the school system, because it's of the same faith, the same kind of culture, you know what your child is getting into. However, there is always that question in the minds of parents that, is the school going to live up to the uh, standard that should be across all schools, you know, whether they're, uh, you know, faith schools or state schools, you know, we want our children at the end of the day to get a great education. Uh, and, you know, it's okay. It's amazing that my children maybe will be around it, surrounded, sorry, by uh, maybe like-minded people and, and, and maybe their, their faith can be strengthened, but are they going to be walking away with, with a good education? I think this is something that, a lot of parents about with either my even myself and me and my wife have this discussion you know are the islamic schools really good enough you know and are we are we sacrificing maybe a portion of our children uh, our children's education by sending them there so i'm sure you may have some uh, strong opinions on that and obviously you don't need to uh, choose a particular school to make a case study out of but any anything in general that may alleviate some of those concerns for parents well <clears throat> Strong views indeed. <laughs> uh, let me ask you the question. What, what sense of bigotry is it towards Muslim professionals and Muslim schools that leads to that thinking? Mm. You had that debate in your home. Yeah. So tell me which bigotry has led to that thinking? That's a, that's a very good point. Um, it could be that we don't we don't think that uh, our own Muslim teachers have worked hard enough, maybe for their positions. Maybe that there's some sort of deep seated thing in there. Uh, maybe we feel like um, we're not, you know, as as a, as a Muslim culture, you know, you, you know, when you go to uh, maybe certain Muslim organisations, whether it's any sort of organisation, a charity, a mosque, or uh, a da'wah organisation, maybe they're not following certain regulations, and you you feel like that spills over into Islamic schools as well. It's a good question. I haven't thought about so, it. So what is your evidence base for those presumptions? With this, there probably have, is no evidence. Have base. you done any analysis on that? No. Have you analysed those Islamic faith schools? No. Have you done uh, 
uh, a survey? No, no. Anecdotal evidence, just because your friend said? Or is it because of a colonial mindset? Mm. It's a very good We're point. We're not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Do you happen to know how many, excuse the ego, but do you happen to know how many letters I have after my name? Do you happen to know which <laughs> journals I've published papers in? No. Okay. Do you happen to know how many years I've spent at the best, globally, the best institute in the world uh, undertaking postgraduate research? No. I think these are, these are all just assumptions. So, and, 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 and I'm talking about myself as one person. Mm. There's many of course, uh, yeah. fantastic Muslim school leaders. Mm. Do you know who happens to be uh, the DFE's uh, go-to person for helping state schools at this moment in time? No idea. Did you know that that was a Muslim? Oh, that's very impressive. It's really good to know, actually. You may <laughs> have heard of Mufti Hamid Patel, who runs some of the best schools in the country. Mm. Data, in terms of data, a uh, so there's a huge amount of really positive work that Muslim professionals in the education community are undertaking. The, unfortunately, the stigma of 20 years ago still begets that profession. Mm. And it is stigma. Yes. And it is bigotry. Yeah. And it is very much what I would say and what I would challenge to be a backwards mentality and a way of thinking and interpretation and view that everything white and non-Muslim is superior to everything black and Muslim. Yes, and I'm sorry to put it in such frank fashion, but after having spent 30 years working on both sides of the, of the, of the, of the coin, as it were, you know, working within the non-Muslim sector for local authorities and working within the Muslim community, a, I, I, I really don't see where that kind of thinking in the 21st century still comes from. Maybe there was a degree of validity when, as I say, 20, 20, 30 years ago, I was training to be a teacher and we had very few Muslim teachers working in, in Muslim faith schools. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, challenges within the education sector. Uh, I don't know if you know how many, you know, what, what, one, of, what one of the biggest challenges is in, in leadership in education at this moment in time. Uh, especially with respect to the BAME community. Yeah. There is a real lack of BAME head teachers in the UK. And I'm not just talking about Muslims, but of course, a large number of Muslims would fall under that as well. So when we have these ceilings societally, of course, it's going to prove much more difficult that we have challenges societally within education as well i.e. the lack of BAME headteachers, the lack of BAME professionals uh, in senior leadership positions. I spent almost 10 years working for a local authority as an ICT advisor. And uh, when I would go to, this is back, uh, this is going back a few years now, but when I would go to conferences and uh, uh, leadership events, there were very, very few BAME, let alone Muslim, Muslims who are represented at those events. So those are some of the challenges that are within the profession. Yeah. And so there is a trajectory that has happened. And whilst you may be right about some of your thinking, what I say, my general advice is that thinking 
is about two decades old. Mm. Yeah. So really yeah. our community at large, if we are to progress, we have to get much more up to speed. What One of the positives I see, I think with respect to your earlier question also, within the Muslim uh, faith schools movement is because there's been so many people now who are going through the, the profession, yeah. much more of them are much, much better qualified. Yeah. Many more of them are into leadership positions, much more skilled and definitely holding their own. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the challenge we have is uh, some of it to an extent is economically. Our community at large is unable to manage to sustain 15, 20,000 pound a year fees. As a community at large, we simply cannot sustain that. Only a small segment can, as with any community pretty much. Mm. And so the reason for moving some of our schools into the maintained sector is to take the 150 to 200 students I have currently and to provide them with a, an education that they pay for. Our families pay for education two, three times over. They are taxpayers, one. Then they pay independent school fees, two. And then they have to pay for any additional uh, quality of education that they want. For example, a madrasa yeah, or swimming yeah, lessons yeah. Or, uh, or lunches or any other provision educationally that they want. So our Muslim families pay not once, but they pay twice. They pay three times. And when our Muslim families, many of whom have got more, are not single child families, are doing that, that's a huge amount to sacrifice yeah. and we cannot sustain that as a community. So it's more important that, that our communities get behind Muslim faith schools, leave the colonial thinking. I'm <laughs> sorry to sort of, you know, uh, convey that, but I think we really have to move beyond that. Find out what's happening in those schools and support them Yes. rather than denigrate them or yep. pull them back by this kind of awkward uh, uh, thinking around what's happening in those schools. Yeah, yeah. And then also help to push them forward and to make them state-maintained schools because the greater numbers that we have, then the more we can fulfill the needs and aspirations of those young uh, those young people as Muslims. Okay, Jazakallah Khair. That's, that's uh, I think, a very clear uh, message that a lot of people and a lot of parents do do need to hear uh, and I think coming from from yourself I think it holds a lot of weight um, but it does lead to then another question about um, pushing Islamic schools to having sort of the state funding is then how much control do we have over our Islamic schools over what is being taught over um, how, how much do we have to bend towards any uh, changes within the national curriculum, changes within the government's um, vision for, 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 for education that may, be, may or may not be at odds with our own community's uh, vision um, for, for our Muslim children? So again, this is a very simple answer, and I understand where it comes from. Uh, the, the, I understand where the question comes from. Uh, it comes from uh, parents at large not knowing how the system works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that's something, again, uh, there, there has been on and off a, a bit of a push for Muslim, the Muslim community to become engaged with uh, governance in schools. That would be a good way to, to, to develop our understanding and our knowledge of the system. Uh, it's very difficult when you're outside of the system to engage with the system. Uh, so becoming involved as governors would help to educate our Muslim communities more about these kinds of questions. Becoming involved with your local Islamic faith school or developing one or 
opening one or supporting those that are uh, wishing to become state maintained would help help parents at large understand. Uh, the simple answer is uh, the if you're saying that entering the maintained sector uh, makes a school become uh, more un-Islamic, then again, I would say there's a huge deal of assumption there. Right. Okay. Uh, and the assumption is, if we if we make it very uh, visceral, what you're saying is that I'm taking a school, I'm leading a school into a state sector, and by doing that, that all of my 30 years of experience in and out of Muslim faith schools, I'm denigrating by making it less Islamic. <laughs> I would ask you, my friend, why on earth would I do that? <laughs> it's a very good question. <laughs> what assumption is it in parents' minds that thinks that people like me, many other really great Muslim head teachers, why on earth would we do that? Yeah. Uh, that's not to say that there isn't a small potential for that to happen. Right. Okay. Uh, but does that small potential counter the narrative of the lack of provision for five or six or seven? I don't know what, what the new figures will tell us. Mm -hmm. Maybe 10% of students in the UK. If our Muslim population has gone up by 22% over the last decade, then surely the numbers of Muslim students will have gone up. And we know, I know, that they are one of the fastest growing groups. Also. Yes, yes. So if currently the figures, my, my data, as I say, is a few years old. If uh, 7, 8, 10% of the student population in, in England and, and Wales is 10%, then that small risk that you're talking about, surely is it not worth it to take that small risk and to mitigate it? Even if there is a risk, how are we going to mitigate the risk? It's by parents, as I said earlier, and the community at large becoming involved with governance, becoming more involved with education, and becoming... Uh, engaged with the Muslim schools movement. Yeah. And of course, I am an advocate of, of that movement. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of a, a very a, a granular, granular level, uh, this school, Barnhill Academy, uh, is moving towards becoming a, a, a voluntary aided maintained school. Uh, and what a lot of uh, people at large, not just Muslims, don't understand is what the term voluntary aided means. Mm. So. Schools yep. in the UK, in England, were established by the church. Okay. Uh, it was the church yes. that created schools okay. in the United Kingdom. Okay. And it was the church that supported the development of the schools movement for hundreds of years. Okay. It was only much later that we had what we call community schools, i.e., state-funded schools, okay. until, uh, you know, from, from, from the origins, it was the church. And voluntary-aided schools are schools that are purely designated for a faith tradition. Yes. Originally, the church and uh, almost all church schools, until very recently, we had the, the academy system and so on and so forth, so they've been renamed. But a... Uh, more or less all uh, uh, church schools would, would have been volunteered schools. Yeah. And faith schools predominantly, by and large, become volunteered schools. I see. Uh, especially for those communities that are, uh, that, that are not from the church tradition. So, for example, mm. uh, the, the, the Jewish schools, 
uh, Muslim schools. Uh, and what the voluntary aided system allows you to do is to maintain your school ethos. I see. Okay. So your ethos, your Islamic or other uh, faith ethos remains intact. And so the, the type of school that you convert to, i.e. VA, allows you to maintain your faith ethos. Yes. The state does not intervene uh, uh, with respect to, for example, your admissions criteria. Yeah. Um, the bigger challenge that many parents have uh, is actually around RSE. Uh, uh, and, and we can maybe sort of talk about that a little bit. But uh, in terms of RSE, that is incumbent upon every school, whether yes. that is uh, an independent school, a faith school, a, a community school, or any other type of school. So no school can uh, avoid teaching RSC, but what schools are at liberty to do is to teach it uh, with respect to their own uh, approach. They can yeah. determine their own approach, how they teach it. Uh, so that's where the bigger challenges are. But in terms of converting to a specific type of school, a, a voluntary aided school, as I say, comes from the church tradition. They are based solely around faith and one is allowed to maintain the faith mm. ethos of the school if you convert to that type of school. There's a much, there's much more detail behind this, but it's, it's for another day. Okay, inshallah. And I think uh, we're coming up for, I think Maghrib has just uh, hit in, in, in where we are now. I think this is a, it's a good place to leave it off, to be honest, because I think I could uh, probably do this with you again and get into uh, some of the more details, get into RSE. And actually, I am looking to do uh, um, uh, an episode on RSE, maybe uh, with yourself and, and some others as well that have been very vocal about, about these things. And I think it's obviously good for parents to be educated on it. Um, so, uh, Sheikh Alim, Zakala Khair, uh, for your time. I really appreciate that. And in terms of Barnhill Academy, for those of you who weren't paying attention, uh, they are taking in applications at the moment. Um, if your children are going to be joining reception in 2023. Um, so if you live anywhere in London, really, you can apply. Um, so make sure you do get your applications in. And I think when, um, we should, uh, hopefully I'll include the links to, to, to where uh, people can, can find that in the description of wherever people are listening to this, inshallah. Uh, Sheikh Alim, if you have any uh, you. last words, uh, go ahead. <laughs> no, thank you so much for having me on, on the show. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, hopefully your, uh, your audience benefits from from some of the, the discussion, inshallah. Inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum